0: Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Hello, friends. Welcome to this Summer series, the origin stories, episode four or five, or I've lost track of the Cyber Guy Podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI supervisory special agent Darren Mott. In this episode, I've been waiting for this one, uh Matt Lee, a cyber security influencer, hope he doesn't mind me calling him that, uh, on LinkedIn. You can find him there, Matt Lee from PAX 8, and we will talk to him in a minute about his origin story. I've been waiting for this one for a while, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I sure I will enjoy um, conducting it. Um, um, a couple news items for you—not really cyber news related, but more podcast news related. Starting on September 1st, so depending on when you hear this, it may have already happened. If I hopefully I'm recording this on Tuesday, August 29th, and I hopefully I get it out either today or within the next day. So, um, but anyway, starting on September 1st in the morning will be the Cyber Smart New uh, Morning News Update. I think is what I'm calling it. So it will be. 5 to 7 minutes of what happened overnight in the cyber world. You know what's uh what do you need to know to start your day when it comes to cybersecurity. Now certainly I am not the first one to come up with this particular plan. There are plenty of other guys that probably do it way better than I do. But something I knew I want to do is something i to try to do five days a week, Monday through Friday, cyber news in the morning. And then if there's interesting news that you're obviously interested in, you can go seek other sources and find that out. So I'll have all the links to those news articles uh, quickly kind of go over what it is, what it means to you as an individual or as a business owner, and then ideally... Um, you can go about your day. So that's coming up again on September 1st, uh, every day in the morning. So it'll be on all your fine podcast providers, but without any further ado, let's get to this week's S- cyber guy origin story with Matt Lee. So when I started this origin series on the podcast, one of the one of the person people I was hoping I could get on was Matt Lee, the senior director of security and compliance at PAXA, and he is blessing me with his presence today. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to come on.
1: Yeah, man, I'm glad to be here. I I know for a fact we're all fighting the same good fight and. Anything I can ever do to help and drive that mission for you, and I'm in. So I'm glad to
0: be here. Right. So I think, as as I mentioned, the reason I'm doing this, I think people are are interested in how people got to where they are, right? You're a huge cyber influencer on LinkedIn, 48,000-plus followers and posting every day and always going around doing conferences. I know I follow your your pictures online on a daily basis. (laughs) I I follow the loss of the beard to the regaining of the beard and all that kind of stuff. So.
1: (laughs) It was a Faustian bargain. <laughs> right? so we raised a lot of money for charities. So
0: That's that awesome. It. <laughs> so it's not about me, though. So let's talk about how Matt Lee came to be Matt Lee. Yeah, man. Yeah,
1: so I, I grew up in the South. I was from Pensacola initially. And, uh, you know, when I first got out of high school, I had this one goal of really just making money. I, I, I genuinely, that was it. I grew up without a lot. And my answer when everybody asked me is, what are you going to be when you grow up? And the answer was rich. Uh, at least that was the statement, right? So I didn't really have a lot of set dreams then. But I did come out, and I went straight into finance. Uh, I got my Series 7, 66, and life health variable annuities in, uh, in Florida. I was one of the youngest in the state of Florida. Worked for different companies for a little bit. I was with American Express Financial Advisors for a few years and built a bit of a practice. And then ultimately started a pattern of leaving careers every four years like clockwork. Uh, I would either get mentally bored, morally offended, or what have you. And have both the capacitance and the drive to try to do something different. And you add to that that I was just perpetually, yes, they was, but I am perpetually curious. And I think one of the things that always drove me was I just needed to understand stuff. I wanted to understand something. So finance is fairly limited. I mean, once you get to a certain point, it's really pretty well the breadth of knowledge has been understood, and I'm being summative. But I left that and started it in banking. I went and was a private banker for a few years at a company called Wachovia Bank. And then after that, I went into uh, mortgages, right? I had left, went, actually went into a private practice a little while as an investor, uh, investment advisor and sold that to a buddy of mine. And then I got into mortgages. Uh, and what I learned was, if you understand a system really well, then there's room for manipulation in that system and i'm going to give you a little johnny foreshadow into hacking um, but it's this understanding that i was doing fha loans for people with sub 300 credit scores or 300 credit scores why well because fha really didn't care about score it only cared about the last 12 months payment history and being able to demonstrate the ability to meet a certain debt to income load for, for things which meant you could go and get turned down by a lender and then ultimately go to HUD and have HUD approve it based on the parameters that were given. Bring that right back to that lender, and it's now a paper for someone with a 300 credit score and can be done. So, yeah, go ahead.
0: So, I'm guessing, is this around 2005, 2006,
1: 2007 timeframe? It sure was. <laughs> you're leading right into where the end of that came from. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, while all my friends were doing fog-of-mirror loans and and doing, you know, essentially, we used to call them fog-of-mirror because all you had to do was show up, no mm-hmm. income, no asset. <laughs> yep, you're good, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with the balloons, I was doing a fixed rate loan, right? And doing FHA. But because of that, I was getting people approved that wouldn't have been. And I charged four points on the front and I made four points on the back. And I was the ugliest, most abusive person to charge the most money because I could get it done. Right. And so when 2008 happened and the collateral mortgageized dab or the collateralized mortgage obligation collapsed. CMO uh, collapsed. That kind of bandwidth into the crash of two thousand eight from the big banks and the bailouts um, was was right there in that time frame. And so, what's interesting was the market responded and said, "Okay, Matt." We know your little HUD trick, and you can go get it approved. We're just not going to fund it without a certain credit score. <laughs> and so, while they met the spirit of the law, they did not fund it or come to the the closing table. And so, ultimately, got out of mortgages, and and we're beating to death kind of the path that it went. But um, I've been involved in in buying and selling gold, numismatic and non-numismatic gold. Uh, what what is that? Is,
0: what is that? What does that mean?
1: Yeah, so numismatic would be like collectible gold, so a 1940s gold piece that has this weird strike, you know, that becomes that collectible aspect, whereas non-numismatic would be something that's just, it's inherent raw, contemporaneous exchange of currency of its value, right? How much is this gold worth, right? So let's say the same ounce of gold that's worth $2,000 might be a $40,000 coin, because of its rarity, right, of some sort. And so so numismatic would be that rarity side of it, whereas non-numismatic would be just traditional bullion, gold, and and melt value of things, right, in that regard. Um, and through that, that was during that 2008, 2009, 2010 kind of collapse, and so I had lots of people selling gold uh, and, and got involved in a few other things and ended up traveling around the country buying and selling diamonds uh, with uh, two Armenian gentlemen. Uh, so during that time, diamonds were trading at. At a very low percentage of rapaport, uh, 30 or so percent of rap, and so we were buying post secondary market diamonds from the dealers that were pulling them out of rings, and then we were selling them in big, uh, in big tranches, essentially, if you will, uh, of diamonds. But, anyways, not the point. Quick question, quick, I, quick
0: question yeah. before you go further. So, you got out of high school and you got your series seven. Did you go to college first, or was it you went right out of high school, studied <laughs> for the series seven, started trading right then?
1: Yeah, I had a full scholarship, and I was going for uh, a business and accounting degree at the time, Um, and I got into this macroeconomics class, and I learned a life lesson at that time. Uh, The life lesson was you can be right and wrong at the same exact time, Uh, and so I was disagreeing with her uh, thesis that she had stated in, in in her class. Uh, and then I wrote a paper to prove it, which was not well received. <laughs> so I, I left business school at the time. I was already a Series 7 broker. I was making over hundred grand a year as a kid. Uh, and so I just decided college wasn't for me uh, mm-hmm. and that, that I thought I'd be better off in the real world. So I got a two-year degree, but I ultimately left and didn't finish college during that time. Uh, so that's a good call out. <laughs> but I did learn that life lesson there. But after I got out of Diamonds and I, I moved and I started saying, you know what? I'm really in love with this technology thing. I think I want to go be a technician. And so I went from making really good money to starting as a ground-level technician at a break-fix MSP. So they had seven humans. We were just under a million in revenue. We're serving that small to mid-sized business market, right? So think of it as your outsourced IT team that's switching from an hourly block model to pay me this much per person a month. And I'll manage all your stuff. And that was the transition that was happening in that time frame. Um, and I realized very quickly that I wanted to be in IT. Uh, and so I I went up to my CEO at the time and said, hey, listen, I'm going to probably start my own MSP. I think that I want to be back in that entrepreneurial spirit. I want to be uh, in my own. And he said, well, I'll let you put your money where your mouth is, and you can buy a portion of this MSP. And so I did, uh, and that was in 2011. We grew that from one million to three million to five million to eight million, merged to become twenty-something million between four companies, and then ultimately uh, grew it to about forty million or so in revenue. But during that time, I was in Wichita, Kansas. We were dealing with the throws of 800, 171, 800, 171 853 peel off to 800-171. It was pre-CMMC conversation. It was during the "Don't worry, self attestation works" mm-hmm. uh, model, and and I was realizing at that time that as an MSP, I had this relationship with a company called Anil, and they were fantastic, and and they 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 said, Matt, you guys aren't meeting any of these things. Like a lot of the stuff that you are supposed to be doing for these companies. You don't have process in place you don't have an ssp you're not meeting these things for them you don't have shared responsibility in place like all of those things were all true Uh, and so i started getting kind of forced down that understanding of that security world very early in that process um, which still makes me a youngster Um, but as as i went through that process we merged to become a larger msp and this is kind of the real origin story of where I got started in in security. I'd been through a few incidents before I had already been forcing my clients to go and get incident response and bring in the Mandiant teams and bring in the spear tip teams and do that work, you know, for the people that were covered entities, or that were things like medical or law uh, uh, lawyers, people that had some already degree of, you know, potential outcome from their failure in that and wanted to have some forensics done. Um, but as we bought as we merged, to become that that four companies that got together and became a new entity i was tapped as the director of security and compliance i i didn't have any proof i knew what the hell i was doing i had a a practitioner's uh, view of it if that makes sense so what year time. what year
0: was this roughly
1: This would have been in the very early stages of 2019.
0: Okay. Uh, So this is actually
1: the first time I actually held a director role of something of merit. Uh, I'd had the title before in the smaller MSP in a couple little places, but not, not, this is yours to own. Uh, And so as that happened, I happened to have traveled and met with a friend of mine that had been part of the first Kaseya incident, a guy named Eric Woodard. And Eric and I sat down, and and he starts crying as we're talking. And and he's like, you know, Matt, it's my first time being back out of— out out in the world after my major incident. I'm like, tell me, I don't know anything about this. And he goes on to explain that his company had been ransomed during the Kaseya event. All of his clients had sued him. He had dealt with all the problems. The insurance he thought he had in place didn't pay out. There were things that just blew up his world. And so he starts sharing with me these things. And they all were things that I'd learned in my training about cybersecurity, right? They're all things that I'd like understood, but they were all just things that were these nebulous things that wouldn't have mattered to me until you actually see it in practice and watch someone's demise from those things, right? Like, um, and so I wrote out this email and it was called my single greatest fear. Now, I can't reproduce this email because I was a security guy and I had encryption on it. I only have the subject. I don't have the body. It was encrypted. Uh, So good for me. One check for Matt on identity and encryption. Um, But the, the email basically went on to explain that we were now a new MSP that was nationwide. We were forming and merging together. And I was the director of security. And because of this recent experience I'd had, I didn't want us to be the next MSP that went through that. That was my single greatest fear. That's why it was called my single greatest fear. And I sent all that, that email out on, on a Tuesday, and I expected for it to be some grumblings because I said I was going to be taking away rights. I was going to be changing what people had access to. I was going to be reviewing principle of least privilege. I was going <laughs> to be doing things like that, which is MSPs off. The technicians are like, what, I'm not good enough? So I send this email out, and I get a response the next morning in Teams on Wednesday morning. And it said, Matt, that's my single greatest fear. I'm in your Florida office. I said, well, we don't have a Florida office, so that's interesting. What do you mean? He says, well, you guys acquired us when you merged. Wait, I'm the director of security. Nobody did need due diligence with me. (laughs) What do you mean? Well, he goes on and he says, and we were ransomed and all of our clients were ransomed in February of 2019. And so this is my on my forefront of my mind. Yeah, I fucking imagine it is, right? And so as I as I get this conversation, I think, okay, I need to go talk to the board. I wanna have a conversation. And the conversation was this. I went on that evening and attended the Wednesday night board conversation. And I said, one of two things has happened here. Either A, this company has misrepresented themselves during the due diligence process and haven't talked about this breach and haven't talked about this incident and playing out what's going on with it. Or B, every one of you are greedy idiots, and I expected to be fired. I continually <laughs> did, Darren. Right? I was like, I'm gonna get fired right here. Your loud mouse over over overloading your Jaybird end, right? And and I and I thought I was gonna be fired, but instead I wasn't. In fact, I wasn't. I was mansplained too. Mm. Uh, The way I would put it was, Matt, you don't understand business. We have an indemnification from them, and we're held harmless from any of that prior data. And I want you to know we also are smart enough that we have an insurance policy that's going to cover us if any of that comes back to us because we only bought their assets. We didn't buy the business. Listen, I'm going to say it to you as a security practitioner, I would have treated this very different in an integration then how they're set up today and how we brought them on if I had known this was in existence. I would just say that's the statement. Okay. We end the meeting. I go through Thursday. I start working on what that plan looks like. What are we doing? Getting some data discovery of what exists. Okay. There's 1,200 endpoints on an old Kaseya server. All right. What does it look like for an integration? Why is integration not already moving forward? And then I get a text message Friday at 5.40 p.m. You being an FBI agent probably understand the relevancy of that time frame. Mm -hmm. But that text message said, Matt, your single greatest fear came true. And I said, you're not messing with me. I know I was a jerk, Nick, Nick Nyberg. I understand. But don't mess with me, bro. And he's like, no, I'm not. Genuinely, we have 1,200 endpoints. They're all detonating with ransomware. And as we dig into it, I spent the next 18 months of my life dealing with insurance filings, lawsuits, threatening lawsuits, dealing with whether this is a breach or not a breach, dealing with digital forensics teams, dealing with the former seller, dealing with all those things, you know, not just myself, but a whole team of us, um, to the end where basically our evil ransomware gang detonated 1,200 endpoints, of which about 240 fully detonated because they were using an in-memory attack. We were able to paste a uh, uh, black hole paste bin and do a few things to make that less impactful when it went to go run that DNS.bat file it was trying to execute. But this was in a unique time. And the reason I say this was in a unique time is the reason this story isn't everywhere is during that time, they had not quite moved to actually saying that they, they egress data, which meant the intention of my legal team for breach counsel, the intention of my spear tip for forensics, the intention of Coveware for negotiation, all of that was to simply prove nobody has egressed data. Nothing has been touched. Therefore, it's not a breach. It is instead an incident, right? They used RRMM to ransom it. Yeah, go ahead.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I so was glad you finished. So this, these 12 endpoints were the ones you imported from that company in Florida?
1: 1,200. And they were still running in their infrastructure. So they right. instead of – integrating or moving them, they were all still running in their old Kaseya server, which sure. comes into the picture here in a
0: bit. So did uh, we'll did you go back that. to – no, is the part of the story going back to the board member and say, hey, guess what?
1: <laughs> you know what? Part of that story never made Matt have to do that because it was so big and so encompassing everybody knew it. Okay. I didn't have right. to say a single I told you so. And was the insurance <laughs> enough to cover it?
0: We're going to get to that. Okay, go yeah, ahead. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry, Go ahead, ahead.
1: <laughs> No, so <laughs> –
0: I'm trying to read, the, I'm, trying to read the, I'm trying to read the week I'm trying to read the Wikipedia entry and find out the plot of this movie. You're already movie. ahead of
1: it. You're already ahead of it. Yeah. No, <laughs> no. so the the point was we we ultimately um, didn't have to declare it as a breach. It was an incident. We didn't have to have breach reporting, right? It, and th- it was because most of your ransomware families in December of that year and some a little earlier shifted to double extortion. Mm-hmm. had it been a double extortion situation there would have been a lot different there right it would have been definitely a breach because they would have egressed data from each of those endpoints that they didn't actually touch here they ran some script through an rmm never actually touched the endpoints but then encrypted the endpoints but at that time the software wasn't egressing data therefore we were able to finally prove that they were not necessarily touching the actual data which meant it was really a compromisation of its integrity but not a compromisation of its confidentiality was this before or after so.
0: colonial pipeline
1: this was about a year, almost a year before, because okay. that next year, Colonial Pipeline was when 2020, if I remember correctly, yes. mm-hmm. was the first one. Then 2021 was SolarWinds. Winds. might even been 2021 that, that that happened. But at the end of the day, 2019 was this magical year before December. They weren't doing double extortion okay. there wasn't a secondary component to that and so we were able to walk away from it but it took us almost a year to figure that out I mean that was forensics discussions conversations lawsuits the whole thing of us dealing with that for almost a year um, and during that time to add insult to injury we actually had to write the owner a check uh, for the rest of the business <laughs> knowing <laughs> that this had happened and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna shock you a little as we come to find out through the forensics this was the third incident our evil had been coming back to them like a piggy bank two times before us. And once we bought them one more time with credentials, they had mm-hmm. active credentials into the system. And when the threat actors were discovered from the ransomware the last time, the company never even did any due, due care. They never even brought in an incident response team. They just restored the server and moved forward. The challenge is that they never discovered. And so they created, in my opinion, gross negligence, which we ended up starting to go down that path. I left before that determination was made, but I would suspect that we did not get anything off that insurance policy. <laughs> In fact, our actual own insurance that we filed, we got about a million dollars less than what the insurance claim was uh, initially for. And so we had some first party payments and some other costs that weren't covered that we should have been covered. Uh, and we we did take that hit. <clears throat> so if you're you know doing the math on it, we bought a million dollar MSB. We lost every company that was paying them because this was their third ransom. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't stick around for my fourth. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'd make it to the third, bro. Like It's, it's very, very uh, very unlikely to make it to the third. Um, but to, to, to add to this, and this is where it crosses over to the FBI side a little bit. So we didn't report. This was prior to a lot of IC3, even really being a conversation in that space. It was certainly before any critical reporting acts that are starting to pass, like Sarcia in 2021 and 2022. Um, but the point being, we wind up with an FBI agent from the Northern District of Texas sitting in my Texas office in June of 2021. Um, I was just about to depart. That was the end of my tenure at Iconic. We were selling, and I knew it, and I was exiting prior to the sale as part of that sale. But at the time, the the agent shows up in our office in in uh, in Dallas and says – I know that that three or four companies all detonated within milliseconds of each other with our evil back in June of or back in September of 2021 uh, or 2019. And we think we can put hands on this threat actor if we can get a victim affidavit saying that they were this threat actor and with the wallet key, with the information we need. And my my general manager in Texas was trying to call these people who just got done suing me. And I, I got wind that they were there from one of my spies. And he said, Matt, the FBI is in the office with you uh, in, in your Dallas office. And I popped in the conference room and said, listen, we're the victim. <laughs> I'll sign your affidavit. My CEO will sign it. I have the spear tip investigation with all the forensics you need. Like it's all in chain of evidence that you need from that. It's covered by breach counsel. Like what do you need from us? And so we signed that in June. I left. And I never heard anything else back, um, and and we'll get back to that. But uh, then all of a sudden in November of 2021, uh, we see this same FBI agent standing on the stage with DOJ talking about the sanctions uh, made on the FSB side uh, for the threat actor from our evil. and it, I went through internal back channels, and that was our affidavit. But surprised that FBI Ooh. didn't circle around and say, hey, Matt, thank you, buddy. Of course we not. No, hell no. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. I'm going to guess the victim witness
0: coordinator didn't contact you either, because once if you're <laughs> no. identified as a victim they're supposed to have a victim witness coordinator that's supposed to walk you through all this and i guess that did not happen because it did not yeah because because yeah. it wasn't it was so post the incident that it it was, was and years, you get, yeah, you'd that already point. give them the affidavit like that's good enough for me and hey they did sanction there were sanctions though so. So,
1: and they did, and they actually did. A, that was the gentleman that did get hands put on in FSB no, okay. right before the Ukraine war. It was in that time frame. So, uh, but yeah, that's that was my origin. So when I say what is my origin of why I got into cyber, I'd been in cyber before that. But brother, if you watch people crying about the loss of their business, mm-hmm. people quitting their jobs, people in post-traumatic stress disorder, the stress and the pain that comes with that. If you're not motivated to, to be in cyber and drive and evangelize and help drive the change that needs to exist in our world, uh, you're probably not human. And so that's where my kind of beginning was, was in that fire, uh, if you will. So uh, nothing, nothing major. But uh, after that, you know, I leaned into some of the gaps in our industry. Um, and, I, and as a practitioner, what was really neat to your point of, you know, Matt, did you go back to that board member after that? No. But you know what I did get to build? I got to build from the ground up our own brand new tenancy, our own identity centric approach our own separation of duties internally our own all the things i could have ever wanted i got to build and not just myself i got to build them with friends with matt topper who's uh, amazing at compliance side of it and that side owned our compliance journey and you know jason farmer owned our internal it and our internal teams and you know you you had people that owned our core services like uh um mark jordan and a few others that all owned massive build out of what if we could build this thing the right way from the ground up and then we did and then we integrated each of those orgs into that way of doing things with those principles of least privilege and basically under under this premise that i used to say we have to live compromised if mm-hmm. I have 200 people, there's zero chance I can walk through the day and not believe that I'm compromised in some way, form or fashion, period. It's just the way it works. And I know this is your guitar string that you pull, <laughs> but that was my statement. And so it was really about how can I limit the blast radius damage? How can I make that grenade only go off and affect six companies instead of 700 companies? And I used to say this routinely to vendors. No, Matt, why do you want MFA or SSO? Well, we don't we don't offer that. And Why, why would you want that? My goal is to take it out of your hands and bring it into mine and be able to limit down how big the blast radius is. If Johnny only needs access to these four companies to do his job, why the shit would I give him all access to 700? Right. And why would I give him more access than he needs? And, and, and all of those things playing out. And so I got to put a lot of weight behind it. One of the interesting things about spending, you know, 20 million or 30 million dollars in, in a channel like this is you kind of get to direct what you want uh, and how you want it to be laid out and what you need for those things. And so because you can... Not vote with that dollar. You can say I'm not going to spend a million next year with you because you're not doing these things. And so I got to do a lot of the early stuff that made it to where MSPs going through this today. I sound like that old man yelling at the rain (laughs) now. But like I got to build a lot of this inroad for MSPs uh, at a time when nobody else was asking it right? And, and and asking and demanding for change. And so I realized that there's a lot of gaps in our world and that I was best served either advising these vendors and software providers and people of how they need to change and grow in order to be better stewards of their fiduciary responsibility or advising MSPs of how they also need to change and grow and be better stewards of, of the, the clients and the partners that they function with. So um, I, I really wanted to work somewhere where I could just evangelize and speak and teach and, and help guide and help people not learn my lesson the way I learned it. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and,
1: and how is that, that how is that yeah.
0: message taken? Right. So you go, you go and talk to these companies and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you, you tell that story, right? That's a, that's a fantastic yeah. hook story. I mean, if you need a hook, 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 hook story offer, your hook is you don't ever want <laughs> <laughs> to have 1200 endpoints go off at once. Here's the story. And now here's how yeah. you would need to do it. How does, do they need that story to get it? Or do you, can you ever go in and just say, hey, look, here's how here's how you can become safer as an entity. And they just say, oh, OK, we believe you. We're going to do that. Or do they they yes. need that scary story? And even then, I mean, I have found even if you tell the scary story, they still like that's yeah, too small.
1: Yeah, I think I think even if you took it away from too small, which again, that's one of the words that's like the worst, like <laughs> in reality. Right. Yeah. But even if you took it from that, even the biggest of enterprises suck at this, right. Aaron. Like, you know, if you go look yeah. at uh, recent breaches, the the major companies, I won't name the names, but you've got one bloke running a Plex server on a home asset that's used as a VPN into a development network, right? Like, like come on, y'all. What about inventory control one? What about control two? What about like you're not doing any of those? Control six, you're <laughs> or control seven, you're failing <laughs> control seven. Like, all of these things. So nobody's doing it well. What I will say is, I think the industry is changing. If you look at the language coming with national cybersecurity strategy around secure by design, secure by default, there's actually incentivization now for companies to start giving a crap about that. It's Mm -hmm. not much. It's the beginning stages of it, but you're starting to see it. So I think more and more people are willing to 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 listen and want to hear it. I think, though, they're still only willing to listen to the point that it affects them financially in their immediacy. Right. And so you're seeing things like insurance. Insurance drives more change than anything else we've seen in the last two years, right? The insurance markets have, have dictated change in the very large companies, even in the very small companies. And a lot of MSPs are benefited but also taxed with. This growth of people going, hey Matt, I actually do want to know what it takes to get secure. I actually do want a roadmap. I actually do want to drive this forward. So I think that it's shifting, in my opinion, Darren. But I think the biggest gap still is in the vendor side, and that's where I love the you know 3.3 in the National Cybersecurity Strategy that starts saying, we need to shift these forces. Market forces often make it to where the lowest of the low. Are the ones that receive the burden of the profit if you will and i'm certainly paraphrasing but it's this (laughs) understanding of saying people build shitty software and sell crappy software that has known bugs and vulnerabilities was not secure by design has no incentivization to rewrite that waterfall code from 14 years ago because it's still making money and so you have consumers that are the brunt of that, that that bear the brunt of that and so i do think the vendors are the least receptive but when they start being receptive they really dive into it and they really start moving it forward and startup companies are doing better at listening than than a lot of the entrenched players in my opinion today so I think it's shifting I know that's a very long answer
0: to your question no, I'm trying, I, I mean think they're starting to be receptive. look at move it, move it move it Citrix how long has have, how long have those been going they've been hey worked for us for years why do we have to change anything oh, Critical yep. vulnerability? Oh, we'll fix that. Oh, yeah. second one. Yeah. Oh, well, oh, yeah. Well, we're good now. Oh, third one. We'll Shoot. patch
1: that one. Damn it! We'll put another. At some point, you make a new tire instead of putting. The <laughs> right, tire. exactly. If you're racing a motorcycle. Yeah. Like you don't keep patching them. The right.
0: There's tire. There's, a, there's a reason that SafeFlight will put a new windshield <laughs> yeah. on on the third crack. They won't fill it.
1: Exactly right. And that doesn't exist here. In fact, I do a, a stage presentation, talking about how the first car was invented in the late 1800s, and yet we didn't have a single patent for a seat belt until 1950. So in that time frame, we changed the entire face of cities. People had the entire concept of a suburb did not exist when you were dragging old Clyde the the donkey into town 72 miles. But if you can drive a car and you can get it in an hour, the entire concept of a suburb exists. So we've changed the entire landscape of cities. But yet, security didn't come up once until 1950s, and even then, nothing really happened legislatively or activism-wise until Ralph Nader writes Unsafe at Any Speed in 1965, and then finally in 66, we have a National Highway and Traffic and Safety uh, you know legislation passed that starts the path of of healing that. And my point is, technology is on about the same time frame. Right, first digital yeah, computer, sure. 1937. Mm-hmm. 80 years later, we're we're dealing with internet. The first, you know, tr- uh, ransomware was the AIDS trojan in '83. I mean, we're 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 just getting to that heyday of, hey, maybe all this shit we built around us every day should be secured. Uh, right. So, I, I think there's a corollary in life that we always build things that are valuable to us first and consider the security implications later. That's right. That's uh, a great and, point. And same thing with your safe, safe flight. At some point, it was just jagged glass, right? Yeah. And it became, hey, you got to use this beaded stuff that just falls apart when you, get, <laughs> you, know, when you hit it, right?
0: That's right. Uh, All right, Matt, where can people find you?
1: I don't know. Airplane seat number seven, usually, <laughs> most days.
0: No, that's good. So, uh, so, you do travel, <laughs> how much do you travel a year?
1: Uh, last year I did a hundred and fifty ish flights uh, last year and I think I was home 40 something days uh, wow. last year like forty six days this year's a little better but it's about that mix. I'm usually home from sometime like maybe November ish through about January uh, that I get you know that dedicated home time without as much travel um, but I I do travel quite a bit and it's basically doing exactly, I mean, people, if you could write down your dream job on a napkin, it's, I get to consult with vendors about their cybersecurity, check. I get to consult with end consumers by talking on stage for their MSPs, Mm -hmm. check. I get to work with MSPs directly and speak on their behalf. And so a lot of my travel time is that, but then combined with um, doing subject matter work, like I do a lot of volunteer work for CSA, uh, for, for CIS, for CompTIA, for different things to just bring that practitioner's mind uh, to changing the, the the world that we're in. And I think if I could make any plug that was a shameless plug, it would be for CompTIA Trustmark. If you're an MSP or if you're a small business and you're wondering what does that next iteration look like for being able to actually show I'm doing the right crap, and I'm not just phoning it in. CompTIA is part of my my belief and my strategy that my hairdresser has more regulation and legislation than I do, right? And if we're honest about that, Darren, mm-hmm. right? You and You're I right. can do what we do without sure. any barrier to entry, uh, other than the FBI part notwithstanding, but <laughs> right. the, but certainly this part of it, this, this pundit and cybersecurity part. Um, and so what I believe is my life mission is, as an industry, technology has to be regulated. The The people that provide and turn the wrench have to have some regulation. In my mind, that should be self-regulatory. It should follow the bodies of evidence that come before us like the Bar Association, AMA, PCI DSS, you know, AICPA, different things where you let the industry itself set what is good and measure that against itself. And have something else be the governance and the empowerment end of that from a government and federal entity perspective. So I say all that to say you can't get to that stage unless you have some degree of critical mass of what is okay and what's acceptable.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I chose CompTIA because they're big enough. They have enough speed. They have enough dedication to it. They've already written tests where we're building CompTIA Trustmark. And CompTIA Trustmark is going to be about 170 or so safeguards and controls that MSPs and small to mid-sized businesses can say, yes or no, I meet these, show demonstrable proof for that. And then in that way, be able to start saying, this might be the barrier to entry of a standard of what we have to have for cyber hygiene, mm. right? Defining what that is. So that's my life mission. Right now it starts with MSPs getting behind Trustmark and actually doing it themselves, putting in the time and effort to establish governance, putting in the time and effort to establish process procedures and, and guidelines around the safeguards that, that exist out there. So, uh Thanks for letting me use this for that platform. Yeah,
0: can you can you send me a link to the Trustmark stuff? I assume that there's something that you could look at because I mean, a hundred, let's be honest, 170. I assume they're call, are they calling them controls. What are they calling them? 170 call controls. Yeah, everybody so everybody likes to make up a new term. Sure. So I mean, that's a lot. Person. I mean, for a lot, that's a lot for SMBs to do. But I'm hoping, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, they're they're easy to understand, right? That's the problem with NIST, right? If you read yeah. the NIST documents, like, what am I looking at here? If if you can even get through yeah, yeah. the first ten pages. So if someone can come up with a way to say, here's here's the minimum you need to start down the road of being safe. And maybe it's even, yep. and do they do, do they do like, is it incremental? Like, look, start here's yeah. level one, level one, trust mark is these yeah. 30 level two is this blah, blah, blah. So if you do more, you get better results, whatever.
1: Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a two year vision for it. it. It would take a company about two years to get there, but I do want to say one thing that's interesting. Yes. They're definitely pragmatic stuff like implement DMARC. That's about as, as direct as it gets. I can go look up how to implement DMARC. I know where it is. I can install it, right? So we're get, definitely more pragmatic and prescriptive. We took a lot from CIS as mm-hmm. opposed to NIST for that very reason, just because the CIS safeguards are very, very uh, practical and, and pragmatic. But what's interesting is, and I talk about this in the book that I wrote with Juan Fernandez and Wes Spencer and Marnie Stockman around the SaaS world. Uh, and what I mean is, is like, imagine I'm an SMB starting up in the old days, and I had a server, I was running it on some hypervisor maybe, it was gonna be Hyper-V, uh, I was going to have a server, that had AD, I was gonna have another server that ran a web application, I was gonna do all these things, we were gonna tie it in, and then I was gonna also manage these accounts and stuff. What about a world where if I started a company today, instead of me having server 2008, 8R212, 12R216, 1920 as variables, force function 03, 03R28, 8R212, instead of all that, all those variables, I simply was consuming an identity platform, whether that's Okta, Microsoft, Google, Ping, name one of the thousands that are out there, and then working under shared responsibility with SaaS relationships, where everything I'm doing is, is that Darren Mott? Is he actually approved to access this app? And everything's centralized in that one SaaS SSO implementation. If you think about that world, what's interesting as a difference is, if I'm trying to meet these 170 plus safeguards, the 50% that are technical and the ones that are tangentially technical that are part of that, All of those are now one script with a different API key and a different secret, and that's it. If I'm going to set up your Microsoft tenant, your Okta tenant for this versus that one, I can set them identically. At the very end of it, it's just a service provider that I'm bolting in with a different name, but the same security settings, one homogeneic plane. So when you start thinking about what could SMBs see in the next five years out of that, it means massive normalization and automation of things because the pieces are all now the same chess pieces, right? We're now using the same identity providers, the same, let's say 500 core applications consuming that I can now script more and more of that. When I was working with CSA to talk about zero trust and implementation, we were writing a zero trust training. I asked all these brilliant doctors in the room and said, what if I was in that second class? What if I was just starting a company today? And I said, let's look at PAX-8 for example. We started that way. We're identity-centric. The only servers we have are ephemeral workloads. They're things that we use, function services, platform services, code. This infrastructure is code. Like we don't have anything that is your traditional AD infrastructure. How much of this changes for people doing that greenfield world versus a brownfield? We argued about it for two meetings. And came back and answered one paragraph about this long. It says, if you're a modern entity born in cloud, identity-centric, and using and consuming shared responsibility services such as platform services, function services, IaaS, things like that, then you actually don't have to pay attention to the last 170 pages because we're now working modern and it's all the same bolts. It's all the same pieces. So get on my grandstand a little bit about it. But the point being, we're heading to a world where there's a cliff. People dealing with brownfield traditional infrastructural views of security versus people focusing on is that Darren and should Darren have access to this data from a pure identity centric approach is a very big difference. I'm not looking at beeps and boops over here. I'm now looking at real identifiable things that are very linear and scalable. And if I fail, I fail systemically. And if I succeed, I succeed systemically. Which means there's, there's, I think, a big difference coming. It's like the auto industry. At some point, once you're Toyota, there's a repeatable process. It's the same thing that comes out. We can make a Toyota be the same safety adherences, whether it's this year's model or last year's model, other than the weird stuff they did with tracking people. They just got in trouble for it, but I'll leave that <laughs> alone. But <laughs> all of that to say, I do believe that small to mid-sized business benefit from that the most. If I can say, yes, you're in Microsoft Business Premium and Microsoft Business Premium tenant has been configured this way and I'm using these functions and these methodologies, I now could scale that for every small to mid-sized business. Even if they were a unit of one with scripting and automation, you're seeing stuff from like Electronique and Roost and other players, Torque, that are out there trying to automate and orchestrate. It really sucks if you're orchestrating a lot of different variables, but if you're orchestrating similar variables, it gets really clean. <laughs> right, in, in my opinion. So uh, I'll get off my soapbox. I'll fall and break my neck. But no, I so think good. the world's changing.
0: Are you finding that that turn is like turning a battleship, turning an aircraft carrier, or turning a jet ski when you talk <laughs> about it?
1: I think for the winners, it'll be like turning a jet ski. Sure. I think for most people, it'll be over the edge of the cliff. I, I even <laughs> yeah. had this challenge for me in my former MSP. It was this understanding of my whole world. There's my son popping <laughs> in the head. let to see you, buddy. Nice. My whole world is built on the clients that are the legacy losers, right the whole world was built on everybody built the other way. Right. So if you're a really big entity, you have a lot of brownfield to try to change. And so in my mind, um I converted a first few clients in late 2017, 2018, and they all fired me. And you'd ask yourself, why did they fire me? Matt, stuff just works. We don't really call your help desk anymore. We're not seeing any problems. I just sign in and everything kind of boots up and I'm accessing my stuff like I don't know what I pay you for. And they were right. And so I, I feel like The companies that have made their value proposition on the left side of that of, I'll be the guy to plate spin and I'll spend the plates the best. I'll be the best to keep all them plates in the air versus the guy that goes, let's just not have any plates in the air. Mm -hmm. Let's just make this more automated and, and down on the ground. So I think that there's a real challenge for companies to make that change because they consider the sunk cost fallacy. They consider that they're, you know, they've spent all this on this. It's already been built. I've got so much in these things. I couldn't possibly start up. And so you're starting to create a world where your competitor starting up tomorrow is faster, more flexible, easier, more easily secured, and easy to scale. Um, and you're not. I think capitalism starts to solve that challenge one way or the other, either yeah. rapid conversions or rapid uh, market displacements.
0: And, and hopefully, the go government out. doesn't get in the way with stupid regulations that make it oh, all impossible. they'll screw it all up. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, no, they'll screw it all up. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah 100%. So, pitch podcast. You got a podcast? Well, a podcast live stream or a live stream. I assume it's a podcast too. But what's your? Uh, yeah. Give your uh, social media uh, locations. Yeah.
1: Every- everything cyber Matt Lee. So LinkedIn front slash cyber Matt Lee, YouTube front slash cyber Matt Lee, uh, anywhere I'm going to be, it's pretty much cyber Matt Lee. Um, but I do a beard cast, uh, a, a beard banter that I do every now and again. It's a personal project. I think I'm at episode 40 something, uh, where I just sit down with cool people and chat about cool stuff. Uh, and then I also participate in a lot of PAX eights, uh, subject material like PAX eight, the game, which you were a, a, mm-hmm. a victim guest of uh, <laughs> as well, you know? And so, uh, you can find me there, but, uh, everything for me is Matt Lee and everything else is PAX eight cloud uh, for PAX eight studios and the stuff we put on.
0: Awesome. Matt Lee. Thanks so much. Find him on LinkedIn. You will learn a lot of stuff every time you read his stuff, Matt. Thanks so much. Appreciate you, buddy. Thanks. So once again, I really want to thank Matt Lee for coming on and giving his origin story. I always learn a lot when I talk to Matt, I hope you did too. That was a, a great interview. And again, I appreciate his time coming on. If you are interested in giving your origin story feel free to contact me darren at the cyberguy.com or find me on linkedin darren uh, i'm sorry linkedin.com slash i n slash darren mott d-a-r-r-e-n-m-o-t-t i'll send you a calendly link and we'll set up a time and we'll do it just like we did it with matt so uh as always i very much appreciate your time to uh download uh review subscribe to the podcast it helps me out Uh, again coming later this week on september 1st the cyber smart morning news update so look for that on all your favorite podcast providers as you go through your week know that knowledge is protection if you can understand the threats targeting you you can assess your risk and proceed wisely thanks again for listening please feel free to tell a friend we will talk again soon